0: You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024, by Feedspot.com. I mean, you got to stop at a certain point. Why is it that
1: girls don't swear? Because, because a man, when he swears, people can tolerate a girl as a pig. No swears. Uh, well, they do not. But nevertheless, it removes something from them. They don't get a man drunk and a man who swears, people will tolerate and say that's a sign of masculinity or something other damn thing. We all do it. We all swear. You show me a girl who swears and I'll show you an awful unattractive person. Yeah. All femininity is gone. And none of the smart girls do swear. But to make that a national policy...
2: What's he really like? You know, what, what's Nixon like? We see these terrible things about him, and yet you say he's nice to, and you work with him. Uh, and so I said, he's, he's like a, a layer cake. Uh, and uh, the top layer is uh, patriot. And beneath that, there's uh, uh, mild paranoia. Uh, and, and beneath that, there's uh, very good, uh, to people who work with him, uh, and, and thoughtful and, uh, and, and not at all abusive. And underneath that, uh, uh, a hard, hardliner. Uh, so in terms of personal relationships and, uh, family relationships and official family relationships, you had this different kind of guy. And in terms of, uh, uh, Willingness to go along with uh, break-ins and things like that uh, somebody else But the trouble is you cannot separate these things out uh, And I said if you want to say what was he really like You got to take your fork and cut down uh, right down the seven or eight layers And then take a spoonful or whatever it is And, uh, and, and you see the, uh, the confluence of flavors and, uh, and that, of course, is why Nixon is still the subject of plays and movies and uh, dramas and, uh, and controversy. Uh, and biographers go back, and, and of course he did make possible uh, more biographical information than anybody ever wanted to. Uh, and so why 50 years from now, somebody uh, looking over what you're doing uh, is going to be able to say on this one we really have a chance to look inside and see the complexities of this uh, of this man.
0: Hi, I'm Randall Wallace and welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. And this is a special edition that I wanted to put in here as we begin working with the Nixon White House tapes. The next episode in our chronology is the taping system. And it opens the doors to an incredible wealth of information about this president that no other president uh, will have been able to offer you because the only comparable one would be Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson tape-recorded his phone calls. He taped recorded all of them, and you really get a feel for Lyndon Johnson. But Richard Nixon attached a device to his belt. Then he walked into a room the, the machine started recording and you get every utterance, every word spoken from the time he o- starts the taping system in 1971 until he's in the hospital in, uh, for viral pneumonia and Alexander Butterfield announces that there is a taping system or testifies that there's a taping system during the hearings of the Senate urban committee. And bam, this becomes an issue, and then the rest of his presidency is about the fight over the tapes. Because of that, and because of Watergate, this the tapes became something of that was fought over, famously known, and yet it's a resource that's very rarely been tapped. I heard historian Luke Nictor say that it has not really been tapped and used for his, historical analysis at, at anywhere close to the level that it should be. And really the only tapes that the public have heard have really been those horrible moments where Nixon uh, says something that he shouldn't say, whether it's anti-Semitic or it's racist. Uh, Nixon was notorious for rants, uh, getting really angry. People who worked with him knew all this. And then, of course, there are the Watergate tapes. And they are, all of that is just a fraction of what's there. And it's, and it's striking because, unfortunately, Richard Nixon's had an extreme disservice done to him. Uh, and that is that these folks who were opposed to him, hated him, the Nixon haters, have made sure that those horrible tapes are the ones that you've heard, are the ones that you hear. But there is a wealth of other tapes here. And there's no question that if you take Watergate out of, out of the career of Richard Nixon, You're talking about a president who is on the same level with Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, George Washington. This is a man who saved this country. This is a man whose presidency, facing extraordinary difficulties, masters them. We're going to introduce these tapes to you. And there are things on these tapes that I don't want to not at least talk about. One of those is the tapes that are uh, indefensible. What do the Indians
1: have that takes even a key to a 70-year-old? They are sufficient. They're the first flattery, Mr. President. They are masters at flattery. They're masters at subtle flattery. That's how they survived 600 years. That's all they do They, go, are, they got suck enough. up, their great skill is to suck up to, to people in key positions. Undoubtedly, the most unattractive women in the world are the Indian. Undoubtedly. <laughs> Undo- I've never seen my whole I've seen. Most most sexless, none people. I mean people say, what about the, the black athletes? Well you can see something, the vitality there. I mean they have a little animal-like charm. the godless Indians, apathetic. Right? <laughs> stronger than we think you know they just it's its unfortunate but this has happened to the jews happened in spain it's happened in germany it's happening and now it's going to happen in america if these people don't start behaving it may be they have a death wish you know that's been the problems with our jewish friends for centuries what else do you have uh, you have a, uh do you have a other uh, decision oh, to the busing thing coming out or no that's way down the road that's good the longer the better. Down the road. Yeah. And there are tapes that are
0: that are worse than than the ones you just listened to. Uh, generally speaking, I would say that uh, those are discussions that are not policy-driven discussions. A lot of the times, like I said, you will hear Nixon uh, have a rant, uh, especially aimed at the press, at liberals that he really ha- that he hated, and and then of course he tended to. Mix racial things into that, and and it's unfortunate. I do think you can make an argument, however, that his record on race relations, be it African Americans, uh, Jewish people, American Indians or Native Americans, or women, is not just sort of strong. I would put him with Lincoln, Ulysses S. Grant, Harry Truman, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon. Those are your five great civil rights presidents, and his records in that area is strong. One of the people who worked for him, William Sapphire, talks about that Mr. Sapphire is a Jewish American, and he addresses the tapes that we're going to be listening to and some of the things that you hear in oral history for the Nixon Library. So, uh,
2: You can be misled by the uh by the tapes themselves, uh, if, unless you're listening to uh, what he was thinking instead of what he was saying. I'm not ameliorating what was said. Uh, same thing came up with uh, the anti-Semitic cracks. Uh, that astounded Garment and Herb Stein and Arthur Burns and uh, uh, all of us who were Jewish and were the, you know, with them and uh, uh, given great uh, authority and, and opportunity by him and we never heard him say that kind of stuff but he would say it in the room with the Haldeman or Ellickman or uh, uh, or others um, and then when it came to Israel he was the strongest supporter because he felt the Israelis had moxie using an old-fashioned word about a So uh, when you asked, "How can you?" uh, Didn't it really affect your opinion of Nixon? Some, yeah, and it was disappointing. But uh, he wasn't anti-Semitic. To be anti-Semitic, I mean, to hate Jews, uh, he certainly did. Now, uh, going back to your question, but help us. How would you explain
3: these these, these discussions with Haldeman? Concern about
2: Jews in the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and where, where does that come from? What, I think how do you he, explain it? Um, he saw uh, Jews as liberals, as New Yorkers, uh, as people who had been against them from the start. Uh, and he would look at Garment and Herbstein and me you know, as exceptions. Uh, and uh, uh, but it was liberals that he hated. Shouldn't hate, but it was liberals and Jews in Hollywood and uh, uh, New York uh, uh, were part of the target. Um, but uh, I don't go for the some of my best friends the Jews uh, argument. Uh, but in this case, uh, uh, I think it was the the towel snapping uh, locker room a kind of uh, uh, anti-Semitism and not uh, something he thought of or something that he, he carried on.
0: And these things are the blemishes that are there, and they're part of the record, and and you should see them. But one of the things that's been a disservice to President Nixon has been the dwelling on that and the dwelling on Watergate and trying intentionally to take away from the extraordinary record that he has. He could be compassionate, as he called then Senator, a brand new Senator Joe Biden,
1: when his wife died. Hello, Mister President, how are you? Senator, I know this is a, a very tragic day for you, but I wanted you to know that all of us here at the White House were thinking about you and praying for you, and uh, and also for your uh, your uh, two children. I'm sure that uh, she'll be watching you from now on. Good luck to you. Thank you very much, Mister
0: President. Okay, call. Or he could be demanding about wanting to get out of this war, and most importantly, getting our POWs home. Nixon got things done, and he didn't let things get in the way of getting an agreement that got us out of that war with honor. Even when we had some of our allies try to try to jerk us around about about our exit
1: strategy, he basically feels he's uh, been screwed. Uh, he knows he has no alternative, um, yeah. and he's going to come along. He told me he was, and he's got to he's got to comply or his ass. It's his ass, not ours this time.
0: Really are eavesdropping on history with these tapes, blemishes and all. And this tape, these tapes really are an amazing treasure of material. I found this when uh, the Nixon tapes books came out that Luke Nichter, who is the leading historian on the tapes, uh, did an interview with CBS Morning News. And he and Douglas Brinkley how it's contributed to the continued fascination with Richard Nixon that goes on a half century later.
4: In July of 1973, the Senate Watergate Committee heard a bombshell from White House aide Alexander Butterfield, and Richard Nixon
5: was cornered. Mr. Butterfield, are you aware of the installation of any listening devices in the Oval Office of the President? I was aware of listening devices, yes sir.
4: Nixon's Oval Office had a secret recording system. The tape suggested a criminal conspiracy that reached the president. In August 1974, as impeachment loomed, Nixon resigned in disgrace. Now, 40 years later, These same recordings are redefining Nixon's legacy.
6: Here we have this unique presidential record, uh, 3,700 hours, and only around 5 to 7 percent had ever been transcribed. And for a historian, um, this is a gold mine.
4: Luke Nichter, an associate professor of history at Texas A&M, has dusted off a library of Nixon tapes in the National Archives.
6: They're part private conversations and deliberations, they're the policy-making process in real time. Nixon thought he was making history, and he wanted to record that history.
4: Transcribing that history took Nictor 10 years. Some tapes are much easier to understand than others.
6: A lot of lonely days and nights, missed date nights, that kind of thing. Um, uh, my my wife, Jennifer, um, there was a period, there are just some periods of time when she says, No, Nixon. <laughs>
4: Nixon had seven secret microphones installed in the Oval Office. The system was voice activated, round the clock, and unprecedented.
7: FDR did a little selective taping. We have John F. Kennedy's tapes during the Cuban Missile Crisis, Johnson tapes on civil rights and all that are valuable. Nixon, it's the whole kit and caboodle.
4: Professor Douglas Brinkley teaches history at Rice University and is a CBS News consultant. He and Luke Nichter co-authored the Nixon tapes, 700 transcribed pages of largely unheard Nixon moments.
7: There's anti-Semitic slurs. There's a bigotry about uh, uh, people in the third world. There's a lot of sort of barnyard cursing, uh, uh, unpleasant amount of backstabbing, um, duplicitous paranoia going on. The American people are suckers getting to know you,
1: all oh, that bullshit. They're people, the people. The tapes cover
4: 1971 and 1972. Foreign policy issues dominate as Nixon conducts disarmament talks with the Soviet Union and opens the door to China.
7: Nixon is playing the chess game of the world. He's moving all the pieces, and his goal is to make America the preeminent power, and if we had to share our power throne with somebody, it would be China. So you can't come away respecting his intellect while um, disliking the lack of moral fiber in the man.
4: The war in Vietnam often dominates the conversation. Nixon wants peace, but what he calls peace with honor.
6: This is from April 17, 1971, and Nixon's really frustrated with the progress of the war. And he's encouraging um, uh, National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger to up the ante to more bombing, more bombing, more bombing.
1: We'll bomb the hell out of our Vietnam. Get my point. Just (laughs) bomb.
6: What's clear is that Nixon is making decisions about the Vietnam War that really don't have a lot to do with Vietnam, bombing the bejesus out of Vietnam, killing South Vietnamese, killing North Vietnamese, putting our own soldiers and South Vietnamese in harm's way simply to show the Chinese were tough, to show the Soviets we mean mean business.
4: The tapes show Nixon micromanaging the war in no uncertain terms.
6: Tough language. You will do this. This is an order. Uh, the briefer needs to be here tomorrow. No, I'm not going
4: to have it kind of crap anymore. From now on, that man is to have his ass over here in this office at
1: 7 o'clock every night Is that clear?
4: Yes, sir. In fact, Nixon was micromanaging foreign policy in general. Henry Kissinger was the national security advisor. But this was an Oval Office full of shifting alliances and backstabbing. Nixon wanted Kissinger excluded from Middle East policy because Kissinger is Jewish. The people were
1: crucified Jesus Christ. all all wrong for the policy the East, be made by a Jew.
4: On another tape. Kissinger tries to set aside concerns about his religion in U.S. policy toward the Soviets. I'm Jewish
6: myself, but who are
1: we to complain about the Jews? <laughs> it's not about business. If they complain, if they made a public protest to us for the treatment of Negroes, we'd be, uh, yeah, uh, you know, it's not about business how they treat their, their families.
7: Henry Kissinger had a big, big ego, but Nixon knew he was taping Kissinger and Kissinger didn't know. So it was a bit of an unfair advantage that the, for the president. And I can imagine uh, uh, Dr. Kissinger must put his head under a pillow every time he hears some, there's some new tape revelation.
4: Also revealing is how Nixon viewed his potential democratic rivals in 1972.
1: It'll be hard enough to put him shit. It'll be hard enough
4: Senator Ted Kennedy and his wife, Joan, were the subject of a conversation that showed Nixon's love of political gossip. You see his wife came in the White House again on uh, some crazy uh, outfit. What a passing, I think some kind yeah. and her son of
1: white or what she, she wears, some, some body stock. gaucho, leather gaucho, A leather gaucho over With a bear in the wrist or something. Well, no, no, they put, it, they put on a body stock, and we'll just flush it on.
4: Seven hundred hours of Nixon tapes remain unreleased. Half still classified; the other half because discussions are too personal. Nixter has listened to almost all the rest—a rare backstage pass to White House power politics and Nixon's complex personality. What is the most important single factor we should come across under first degree?
1: Guts. Yes. Absolutely yes. Do you agree, me?
6: You know, Nixon really is like a prism. You know, you can turn it any way you want and the light will hit it different ways.
8: And we take this moment to look back at someone who had a profound effect on our nation. And joining us for that is Beverly Gage. She's professor of 20th century American history at Yale University. Presidential historian Timothy Naftali, former director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library and Museum. He's now head of the Taminant Library and Robert F. Wagner Archives at New York University. Pat Buchanan, who served as a senior advisor in the Nixon White House, and he's author of the. The book The Greatest Comeback, How Richard Nixon Rose from Defeat to Create the New Majority, and Luke Nichter, co-author with Douglas Brinkley of the book The Nixon Tapes, a compilation of key conversations recorded by the president's secret White House taping system. And we welcome you all to the news hour. Pat Buchanan, as someone who knew Richard Nixon very well, why do you think it's important that we look back at him and look back at his
5: presidency? I think, certainly, when you mentioned the Watergate scandal, uh, it was the greatest scandal in American political history. It brought down his presidency. Uh, Bill Clinton was impeached, but he survived that. But Nixon's presidency, I think, is an extraordinary thing, because if you take a look at his first term and not the Watergate second term, I think you would find him one of the most consequential of all presidents. He had opened up China. He had negotiated arms control with the Soviet Union. He had ended the draft. He had desegregated the South. Uh, he had enacted the 18-year-old vote and, you know, built EPA and OSHA and the Cancer Institute. So he was an enormously consequential president. And it's my view and some others' view that had he sort of stood down, say, and before it graded his second term, I think he would have been a near great president. But there's no question that the second term was a failure. And what people remember are two things, Nixon to China and Watergate.
8: Luke Nictor, Pat Buchanan raises uh, the fact that there are many aspects to this man. It wasn't just Watergate. You told us this week, you said, we're still trying to digest this man 40 years later. Why is
6: that? Uh, Pat sounds like a spokesperson for the book in some ways. Um, (laughs) I I think I didn't know this 10 years ago when I started working on the tapes, but I know it now, that uh, the—when you add up all of the Watergate and abuses of government power, we now call it material on the tapes, it's only about 5 to 7 percent of the total tapes. Yet, these 5 to 7 percent have created almost 100 percent of our impression of the man and his presidency. We still have seven to 800 hours of tapes that have not been released. And so we're already drowning in tapes, and yet we still have a lot more to learn. I teach 18- to 20-year-olds who, for them, Richard Nixon is as ancient as the American Civil War. They don't even have a great living memory of 9-11. They want to learn something other than Watergate. Beverly Gage, you, you, told, you talked to us about
8: how he, he really was part of a series of things that happened in this country in the late 60s and 70s. Expand on that.
9: Right. Well, I think we have to see Watergate really in the context of a whole series of crises in the American government. And in many ways, Watergate is the most dramatic of them. But it comes in the context of a huge struggle over Vietnam, over secrecy over Vietnam, over the ways that the intelligence establishment had been treating anti-war protesters at home. It comes in the midst of real turmoil, certainly over civil rights in the United States. But, uh, you know, the breakdown in Some ways of democracy at the Democratic National Convention. And so Watergate became sort of a place where all of these contests uh, came together and were, I think, played out in Watergate, in addition to playing out uh, people's views of Richard Nixon himself. And, And so, Tim Naftali, is that one reason
8: why we remain so fascinated by him?
2: Well,
3: we remain fascinated by him because, on the one hand, he was brilliant. He was also um, a a political icon in this country for 50 years. And at the same time, he remains the only president to resign. By overstepping his bounds, Richard Nixon tested our constitutional structure. What happened 40 years ago this week was that the U.S. constitutional structure showed that it could last—it was flexible enough to deal with a president who had exceeded his constitutional bounds. As Beverly intimated, this really was the high point of the imperial presidency. From this point on, Congress and the Supreme Court would be taking measures, putting them in place, to reduce, to some extent, executive authority. Richard Nixon is Shakespearean because um, he was so full of power, so full of darkness, so full of ambition that he tested our constitutional structure and reshaped it uh, in a way that I'm sure he regretted, but in a way that has been helpful to all Americans.
8: Shakespearean Pat Buchanan, you, you worked with him. You started he, working with him, followed, him well before He, he followed he was
5: the president. saintly Lyndon Johnson. It was wiretapping Dr. Martin Luther King, and they're taking the products of the wiretap and delivering them to the press corps. All that was covered up. But I will say, your question is excellent. Why is there such a fascination? Look, Richard Nixon was a national figure in 1947. I don't know what grade I was in. He nailed Alger Hiss. Hiss. He was in the the whole McCarthy-Truman era. He was at the center of that, the second-youngest vice president, loses to the legendary JFK, loses in California, says, goodbye and good luck, I'm out of politics, manages what I call the greatest comeback in American political history, vaults to a 49-state victory on top of the world, and because of the mendacity and because of, frankly, the indecisiveness in. Watergate, not to step up and say, look, our guys did it, I didn't know about it, and we got to cut them dead. And that's what he— Nixon uh, used Pat, to wait. say— Hold it, hold it. Nixon used to say, you know, ask what the prime minister said. A prime minister's got to be a good butcher. He was not a good
8: butcher. Well, wait— Tim,
5: not telling. Wait,
3: if I may. Well, If I may. Uh, uh, Pat, you've reduced Watergate to just the break-in and the cover-up of the break-in. -hmm. Watergate turned out to be a pattern of abuses of power, which are well documented by the tapes. The president applied to the domestic realm the kinds of activities that we associate with foreign covert action. He didn't mind doing whatever was necessary to hurt his political enemies. He ordered things that fortunately people didn't follow up on.
5: Well, look, now who was a deep throat, a Washington Post hero? Mark Felt, in charge of black-bag jobs for J. Edgar Hoover. Here he was, a corrupt FBI agent, stealing secrets out of the grand jury, turning them over to reporters who were getting the fruits of his crimes in order to bring down a president. Now, look, this was a very tough era. There were things done in, in Watergate also. I was offered the headship of the plumbers. And I went over and looked at these cowboys, and I said, "I don't think I want to do this job." But some stupid idiot went into Dellsberg psychiatrist's office for what purpose I don't know. But Nixon didn't know it. But I'm I'm interested, Luke Nicker,
8: And after listening to more than three thousand hours of those tapes, what more did you learn about this man?
6: And we still have plenty more to learn. Um, I, I think what I've come away with, uh, uh, I think, a deeper appreciation for both his. I think his good traits and for his faults. I say, uh, let's give Nixon credit where credit is due mm-hmm. and let's continue to criticize where we think criticism is due. I think what's clear with this discussion is that Nixon does occupy this sort of unique place in our public consciousness. We like to put presidents in boxes. We have the top third, the bottom third, we have average, we have below average. Where does Nixon fall? What box do we put him in? Who else is in the box? Can a box even contain Richard Nixon? Yeah.
8: Yeah. Well, Beverly Gage, that's a good question for you as someone who looks at contemporary. American history, what box does he fit into?
9: Right. Well, it's the interesting thing about Nixon, as Luke says, is that he fits into a lot of boxes. So if you're going to do your pure numerical rankings of how successful a president was, certainly the only president to resign ends up pretty close to the bottom. But there's a whole series of kind of revisionist mm-hmm. discussions about Nixon. Was Nixon actually a liberal? Right. By today's mm-hmm. political standards, the man who founded the EPA, Should Weekly, and many people actually now are looking back to Nixon right. with this sort of romantic. Atlantic lens, a so, moderate
8: Republican. So, Pat Buchanan, help us understand this because today right. we think of Republicans in one way. He was a different kind of
5: Republican. He was indeed. See, he was an Eisenhower era Republican. The conservative movement to which I belonged began really in the late 50s. Nixon was already an international figure then. And so uh, I looked upon him as an eclectic, a pragmatist who had—you know, who was not anti-government. He came out of poverty. I'm sure he didn't think the New Deal was going down the road to socialism. I think all of those things. But, I, you know, I saw the tapes the other night. Listen to him, And he had these scurrilous comments about Jewish folks when someone did something, and he cut, cut into it. And then you realize—I uh, was with him when he ordered the airlift that saved Israel in the Yom Kippur War, and Golda said he was the best friend Israel ever had. So when you said, you got to put it together, put it all together. And uh, I think you get a complex picture of someone who was a powerful national figure for 30 years. But
3: I also think that Richard Nixon forced a lot of Americans to think about what they want their president to do. You know, the reason why Richard Nixon, I believe, would not have resigned had it not been for the tapes is that we Americans prefer our presidents to be right. We'll disagree with them. But at a certain point, the president is our bald eagle. We, we we need presidents that are better than average. Mm-hmm. And Richard Nixon tested that and made a lot of people in Congress, in the Supreme Court, in the press, and in the public think about what should the limits be on any man who occupies—and someday, I hope, a woman—who occupies the White House. Yeah. For that, Richard Nixon will be forever remembered.
6: Luke, Luke Nichter, what would you add to that? I would add to that um, not just the Nixon presidency, but really it's kind of the long 1960s. It kind of fundamentally reordered the relationship between the government and the governed. I think we've become less idealistic about presidents. I think we you know we launched a field of investigative journalism. Journalists became heroes as a result. Woodward and Bernstein. Young people wanted to go to journalism school as a result. I think people have become more cynical of their political leaders and I, in, some, in some ways that's better. I think it's created a degree of greater transparency but I think ultimately it, it, it changed the country in so many ways
8: did we did we but I w- it just a minute. I want to turn to Beverly Gage first. Did we, uh, did we permanently become more cynical, Beverly Gage, as a result of Watergate and, and the Nixon presidency? Do we give him the credit or discredit for, for that?
9: I think we did. I mean, I think that—so I, th- I would add two things to what what's already been said. One is that we also have to look at Watergate not really as ending with the resignation, but having a series of consequences afterwards, uh, particularly for the intelligence community, you began to have a whole series of studies of government secrecy. And those really fundamentally changed in the 70s. And the second thing that I would add is that I do think it changed Americans' attitudes toward government and toward their expectations of government. In a funny way, if you had been here in 1974 on this day and said, what's going to happen to the Republican Party, you would have said, they're finished, right? <laughs> they're never coming. But in a funny way, this suspicion but, of government actually, I think, benefited know, people put, like Reagan. I put,
5: I put Ike and JFK together, and I think that was an era of good feeling in America. And then you had Lyndon Johnson and Nixon. And Johnson was broken by the same cultural, political, moral revolution, civil rights, anti-war, all the rest of it you know, urban riots, all the things that came out of the 60s that permanently, that brought down Nixon, brought down Johnson, permanently divided America. Not only that, that division has grown, and the counterculture, I think, is dominant now. But this is, these are the seeds of the wars we're fighting today. You can see the Goldwater, Goldwater Goldwater-Rockefeller battle inside the Republican Party and the McGovern-Muskie battle inside the Democratic parties today. Democratic Party is more united. I don't know that the Republican Party can really... uh, come back, though, because it has permanently lost, I think, a significant slice of the country.
8: We are raising subjects that we could go (laughs) on about, and we'll have other opportunities to come back, but we want to thank you all very much. Tim Naftali, Luke Nichter, Pat Buchanan, Beverly Gage, we thank you.
5: Thank you.
0: And now, the Nixon White House Tapes.